the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Now, does anyone remember the Versus series? So it's like peak COVID. Everyone's very much quarantined. And you basically had two musicians that were facing off against each other in a sense. They're going through the highlights of their of their musical catalog, their musical features, and, and everyone at home kept a vote and basically uh, voted on who ultimately was the winner. So we are doing the Versus series right here on Pharmacy to Dose, and we're going to use critical care pharmacotherapy agents to battle head to head. And the first episode is amiodarone versus lidocaine, featuring recurrent guest Matt Wannett, cardiology pharmacist from Houston, Texas. Now, he has amiodarone, and I have lidocaine. Now, you may be thinking, wait, wait a second, Nick. I remember in the critical care medication March Madness bracket that amiodarone was a two seed and lidocaine was a 15 seed. You're correct. That's what I do for my guests here on Pharmacy to Dose. So uh, we'll discuss the use of these three drugs in three specific scenarios. And um, we're going to highlight a specific landmark study to make our argument, as well as a potpourri section. Um, And then uh, the Friends of the Pod going to give a few days for people to listen, but then we're going to vote on social media to pick the winner. So that uh, voting is going to start. Uh, this episode's getting released uh, Thursday, July 20th. So voting is going to go live Monday, July 31st. Um, and you get to vote as to who you think the winner is. Uh, speaking of social media and voting, 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. This is your last reminder, folks. Voting is live now and it literally ends tomorrow, Friday, July 21st. And I just have to say... Um, Pretty blown away at the response. I mean, wow, you all are uh, just the best. Um, It's been overwhelming both in messages as well as votes. Um, So if you haven't yet, please, please do. Link to the ballot is in that episode description, the website, all the social medias at Pharmacy to Dose. Encourage everyone, uh, if you haven't, to go vote. Um, This episode was uh, so much fun and surprisingly challenging to prepare for. So let's go to the ring for our first versus battle. It's amiodarone versus lidocaine right now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now with me now, a special guest, and I guess you could say my opponent for the next hour or so, it is Matt Wanat. Now, Matt is the Clinical Associate Professor and Program Director for the Fellowship in Academic Pharmacy at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy and is a Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in the Cardiac ICU at the Michael E. DeBakey VA in Houston, Texas. Find him on Twitter at Matty Wanat. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. How are you feeling? Did you carbo load tonight? What's your What's your mindset? <laughs> Good to be back, Nick. Thanks for having me. I, I'm ready for this. You know, this is going to be a battle of the two big guns with amiodarone and lidocaine here. So, you know, God help us all after this hour. <laughs> so, so just so everyone is on the same page as us, I want to kind of go over some ground rules as we start today, right? So it's amiodarone versus lidocaine. We're going to compare their use in three specific scenarios, right? Out of hospital cardiac arrest, in hospital cardiac arrest, and then ventricular arrhythmias with the pulse. So in each of these categories, each of us gets about five minutes to make our case, and then each of us will get two minutes to rebuttal. Now, when we're making our case, each of those is going to kind of focus on one landmark or one article that we think best kind of makes the argument for our agent in those scenarios. And then, you know, if there's other guidelines or, or articles you want to pop in, that'll kind of happen towards the end. So following those big three, it's going to be the potpourri section. So that's where each of us kind of gets to highlight a specific, unique indication for the drug not yet covered. And then, of course, we end with closing arguments, right, making our case as to why our drug is the uh, better antiarrhythmic agent. And then just so all the listeners know, we don't know what either of each other are going to say. We shared our articles of what we were going to kind of focus on, but that is it. So no, there was no behind the scenes anything. Um, All right. Matt, anything you want to say before we get started? I don't think so. I'm ready to go, though. I'm ready to take you down. Yeah, I feel like for me, I'm at peak confidence right now before before the, the cardiac ICU specialist comes in talking about AADs. So um, out of hospital cardiac arrest, we're going to start with first. And um, Matt, since you're kind of coming here, right, guests go first. So why don't you take the lead? Awesome. So I'll get us started. So I think it's important to start with the fact that we have to point out that no antiarrhythmic drug has yet to be shown to increase long-term survival or to even improve neurological outcomes after V-fib or pulseless uh, VTAC cardiac arrest. The data, we're starting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The data is definitely better with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest compared to in-hospital, and you guys will, will clearly see that as we have several larger randomized blinded trials. Um, the guidelines give us a 2B rec here, so that's basically saying can be considered for using amio or lidocaine for shock refractory VFib, VT arrest. I think a lot of people in the critical care realm are at least somewhat aware of the three big randomized trials in this area, the ARREST trial, the ALIVE trial, and the ROCK-ALPS trial. And, you know, I really took a step back in thinking about which one to present for amiodarone I wanted to, I took a step back and, and really think about the overall performance of the drugs. And when you're thinking about amio, 
We have one study showing it was better than placebo. We have a study showing it was better than lidocaine. And then we have arguably maybe the best study showing it was similar to lidocaine. For lidocaine, a lot of the choices are a little more tenuous as you don't have any studies that show superiority. So I'll start right there. But logically, I think it makes most sense to talk about the ALIVE trial. So here we go. So the ALIVE trial was published by Dorian and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine in 2002. It was a randomized double-blind controlled trial which looked at IV amio and IV lidocaine as an adjunct to defibrillation in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Toronto. They enrolled these people that had documented VFib or uh, um, pulseless arrest that converted to VFib that was not due to trauma and that was shock refractory to at least three shocks and one dose of epinephrine. And these folks were uh, enrolled from 1995 to 2001. The active intervention or the drug was given to EMS and then included amiodarone, five milligrams per kilogram in the Corderone branded format, which contains the polysorbate 80 vehicle, which I think we'll talk about a little bit, or lidocaine, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram for the first dose. People could get a potential for a second dose. Notable, it was a half a dose of amiodarone, so 2.5 milligrams per kilogram if a second dose was needed, but the full dose of lidocaine if a recurrent first dose was needed. The primary endpoint they looked at was survival, the hospital ICU admission. They also looked at survival to discharge and any adverse drug events from the um, intervention. It was a smaller study compared to some of the other ones we'll talk about. Um, a total of 347 patients were randomized and included. Pretty even between the groups, 180 got AMIO, 167 got lidocaine. Um, some baseline characteristics that I think were would be important to point out, the median time from EMS to first contact for the patient was about seven minutes. So I thought that was interesting because I know I see all over Facebook in our neighborhood groups, EMS takes forever, fire takes forever. So, you know, this was back in the late 90s. EMS seemed like it got there pretty quickly. Um, maybe not necessarily the case anymore. 25 minutes to intervention of the first study drug. And on average, these folks got five shocks before receiving the drug. When looking at the primary outcome, which was survival to hospital admission, 22% of folks in the AMIO group compared to 12% of folks in the lidocaine group survived to hospital admission. And this was a statistically significant improvement with amiodarone. Um, no differences were seen in survival to hospital discharge. And overall, I thought this was interesting, really low overall survival to discharge rate, 5% in the AMIO group and 3% in the lidocaine group. So, you know, upwards of 95 to 98% of these people never ended up leaving the hospital. So pretty low. Um, Safety-wise, there was no difference in the number of patients who needed atropine or vasopressors for hemodynamic instability between the groups. I think this is significant as they did use the, the older form of amiodarone, um, which contained the polysorbate 80, which has vasoactive properties, which can cause some hypotension. So in summary, ALIVE showed that amiodarone was better than lidocaine for getting people to hospital admission, surviving to hospital admission, no difference in overall survival to hospital discharge, no difference in adverse drug events showing that acute treatment, um, similar ADRs between both groups. That was a solid first blow. The... Um... <laughs> The ALIVE and the ARREST trials are certainly um, two of those landmark studies that um, 
you know, literally led to lidocaine not being in recommended in those ACLS guidelines until I think the most recent update or was it 2018? Either way. Okay. I love that we started with out of hospital cardiac arrest because I'm going to set the scene here. It's a crowded ambulance. You and your paramedic partner have been doing chest compressions for 15 minutes. You've been administering epi. It's time to pull the antiarrhythmic agent out to treat shock refractory V-fib or VTAC. So you can pull, you could try to pull out that oily amiodarone from two separate vials and you inevitably pick the 5cc syringe instead of the 10 like you needed. Or you can pop that app eject open, flip those tops off, and lidocaine is ready. Okay, so we got the arrest trials in 1999, um, looking at amio versus placebo, and then you have the alive trial. Look, in Toronto, um, the New England Journal of Medicine study that Matt just highlighted. So let's talk about the 2016 Rock Alps trial, which took place as multi-center in North America, it took place in 10 sites across Canada and the U.S. So multi-center, randomized, double-blind, um, and basically patients were randomized to either lidocaine, amiodarone, or placebo. And this is in addition to all of the standards of care in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with that shock refractory um, VFib. I like that Matt brought up the the time to presentation because I thought that was interesting going through this as well. And the time from call to EMS arrival in this study was about six minutes. So um, really feels very quick. Um, now, they... They ended up, the primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge with the secondary outcome of that favorable neurologic function. So this study included just over 3,000 patients. That's right. So it's a huge study. And they found no difference in the primary outcome of survival to hospital discharge with amiodarone or lidocaine as kind of compared to placebo. Now they had they had eight pre-specified subgroups that they talked about. And when you pull up the supplementary appendix of the Rock Alps trial, I want to point out just, just one thing. And it's that the, the use of lidocaine compared to both amiodarone and placebo increased the odds of ROSC at ED arrival, while also increasing the odds of hospital admission in those patients who had a witnessed arrest. So, the trial really showed there was almost no differences between these agents, placebo, lidocaine, am- and amiodarone. So I wanted to point out some of the biggest kind of the real differences between them. Now, after the Rock Alps was published, the European Resuscitation Council, the ERC, they released a 2018 update on the use of antiarrhythmic drugs for cardiac arrest, and they recommended using an- amiodarone. And they state that lidocaine can be used instead of amiodarone. They changed the level of evidence. Now, when you dig into the text, it's always funny when you read into the guidelines and what you're going to find. The recommendation of why they recommended amiodarone is because 21 of the 24 council members said that they would still use amiodarone over lidocaine as their antiarrhythmic medication of choice. And this change could cause confusion. So ultimately, the case for amiodarone is that it could be too confusing to change to lidocaine. Matt, my argument is, I think that'd be confusing not to. Okay. All right. Now, the the floor is yours for the rebuttal. Wow. So so you're accusing the European guidelines of being a bunch of haters, huh, (laughs) regarding lidocaine? (laughs) <laughs> I do love the European guidelines and I have to reference them a lot with, with my lidocaine defense, but yeah, I, I had to dig into the reference a little bit. Absolutely. 
No, yeah, we we love Europe. We love Europe. I thought you know something to, to talk about the the fact amiodarone is more difficult compared to the pre-filled syringes, right? Um, tough to draw up. You, sometimes you grab the wrong syringe. You got to draw up from the vial. My question is, outside of you know the critical care specialists, how many non-specialists or you know general folks even know lidocaine's in the crash cart? How many of them have familiarity with it? Know the dosing of it? You know, I, I, I know all my students, if, if they make me proud, they should be able to know the amio dosing right off the top of their head in cardiac arrest. But I don't think many of them could tell me the lidocaine dosing. Um, and that kind of leads, segues into the dosing that was used, which I thought was, was kind of interesting as well. The guidelines recommend a weight-based dose, and that's something that um, the, you know, it's kind of been a, a knock on amiodarone. You're going to give the same people, whether they're 50 kilos or 150 kilos, that 300 milligram dose and 150 milligram dose. At least we use a weight-based dose for lidocaine or a recommended weight-based dose. And they did use a weight-based dose in the ALIVE trial, but in the Rock Alps trial, it wasn't a weight-based dose. They used pre-filled syringes. So folks got 120 milligrams of lidocaine, two syringes. If they were under a certain weight, I think it was 50 kilos, they got uh, only one syringe, so they got 60 milligrams. And then the second dose was not weight-based either. It was 60 dose, uh, sixty milligrams. So it's kind of interesting how we extrapolate dosing and the recommendations and the guidelines, but a completely non-weight-based dose was used in the Rock Alps trial. Now, I, I have to be fair. Rock Alps, I would agree, is the best randomized trial to date. It's the most recent. It had a placebo control group as well. But at the end of the day, showed no difference between amiodarone or lidocaine. So if you're coming at me in this battle, so far, I think lidocaine, you know, there's an argument to put it on the same level of amiodarone. And I'm completely fine with the guideline recommendations. You know, being a 2B recommendation, we don't have that definitive outcome that it actually proves survival or improves neurologic recovery. So keeping it on the same level as amiodarone, I think, is reasonable. But I don't think we have any data right now that, that talks about superiority with lidocaine. What do you think? I plead the fifth there. But I like that you brought up dosing um, because that's also what I wanted to talk about. Because when have we ever done five mg per kg of amiodarone dosing, right? It's almost exclusively 300. And what I would have liked to know, because the ALIVE trial did the five mg per kg, I have to imagine that the average weight was not 60 kilos of all of these patients. So I would be very curious what that is. What dose did they use? If it's higher, right, what effect did that have? Are we underdosing amiodarone, and is that why we're seeing differences? Right, We don't know. It's hard to know because we don't have that published stuff. And then the the design of, of the earlier studies was survival to hospital admission, which that's definitely important, right? You want, if in, in those cases, loved ones to see all that kind of stuff, but like ultimately survival to discharge, neurologic outcomes are the important things. And so the other thing that I wanted to point out is if we're talking safety, in that Rock Alps trial, more amiodarone patients needed atropine as well as temporary cardiac pacing in that Rock Alps trial than lidocaine or placebo. But you do make a very good point of familiarity. Like if we polled 20 people, I'm guessing a high percent would know the amiodarone dose, and I think we would be disappointed in the amount of people who knew the lidocaine dose right off the top of their head. So that is, we're in July. It's, it's an important point of familiarity and comfort 
Um, that is a, a decent point, but comfort versus efficacy, who we'll, we'll kind of see. Okay, round one. Ding, ding, ding. I should have got a ding, a, a ding sound effect. Sorry, sorry, friends. Um, but let's move to in-hospital cardiac arrest. And I hope the listeners enjoyed that high-quality data that we started out with in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest section because this is when the fun really starts. As we parse through some of the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and some of the other data for these agents. So... The study that I want to highlight, special shout out to Deborah Wagner, first author, pharmacist, University of Michigan. This trial was published right after Matt and I had the initial discussion about this idea. The trial that I would have talked about before this would have been rough. So, uh, Deborah, I thank you so much. Um, And it's also up for publication of the year in the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. So, If you like this study, um, be sure to uh, go vote for her. Now, this is titled Comparative Effectiveness of Amiodarone and Lidocaine for the Treatment of In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. So, published in CHEST, came out in May of 2023, and this was a retrospective cohort registry study. So, all the hospitals that are registered with the AHA get with the guidelines, right? You submit data to the registry. And so they pulled that data and they pulled 14 years of it. And they ended up including at the end after they excluded patients that um, either didn't have a shockable rhythm, they received both agents or they were receiving things before those are kind of excluded. So we got about 14,000 patients. And the primary outcome was achievement of ROSC. And they actually didn't find any difference between those three, between the groups. There was no difference. But treatment with lidocaine was actually associated with a statistically significant increase in survival at 24 hours, survival to hospital discharge, and favorable neurologic outcome at discharge. Now, obviously, retrospective registry study we're going to have cohort, we're going to have confounders throughout, right? So they adjusted for those baseline confounders and they found that um, lidocaine actually had a higher incidence of ROSC and the others maintained that statistical significance. So I'm going to steal Matt's argument here for a second. It's not a prospective study, nor is it our gold standard randomized double blind study. Well, folks, I'm telling you, that's just not here in, in this data, and it's the best that we got. So why do I think amiodarone is the winner here? So in hospital cardiac arrest, and this is my opinion, I want to be very clear. I think that many of these patients are on amiodarone as an inpatient. They might be on infusions. And my theory is that giving them more is not the answer. Now, I know if you're in CT surgery, you vehemently disagree. More amio is always the answer, I know. But I hypothesize that maybe the use of an agent with a different mechanism might help rather than giving more of the same. All right, Matt, the floor is yours. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. And, and I completely agree regarding big shout out to Dr. Wagner for publishing the study in chess, first off, first author, um, major props. And, and I won't give you information on who I voted for, for study of the year, because I don't want to worsen my case, but this <laughs> is definitely a strong one. And, and I, I agree that 
the best piece of data, arguably, that we have for in-hospital cardiac arrest, but it's still fraught with a lot of limitations that, that really prevent the generalizing of the results. Um, so the study that I wanted to talk about for in-hospital cardiac arrest is, is similar concept. It's a cohort study using the same database to get with the guidelines database, but it's in pediatric patients. Um, but before talking about that, you know, as we pointed out, no randomized trials that look at in-hospital cardiac arrest for lidocaine and AMEO treatment. Um, there's been some other several smaller sort of database studies that have been published in both kids and adults, kind of like the ones we're going to talk about. Some single center retrospective studies, but once again, no randomized trials, no controlled trials. So definitely less robust data than what we have for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the study that I want to talk about is by Holmberg and colleagues. It was published in Resuscitation in 2020, and it's titled Lidocaine versus Amio for Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. It was a retrospective cohort study looking at kids within hospital cardiac arrest over 18 years from 2000 to 2018. Used the same um, Get With the Guidelines registry that, that you talked about, Nick, that was used in the past study. Um, same concept, but now in kids. They included everyone less than 18 with VFib, VTAC arrest. They got amio or lidocaine. Um, excluded people if ROSC was returned within two minutes, if they got both drugs, or if they were missing any data on the primary outcome. An important thing to point out is that timing of medication and dosing of medication was not available, which I think is another limitation that we saw in the Wagner study as well. The primary outcome they looked at, very similar to the outcomes that, that we've seen being studied across the board in the, the literature we're talking about. ROSC, defined as getting a pulse and, and cessation of compressions for at least 20 minutes. They also looked at survival for 24 hours, survival to hospital discharge, and then overall favorable neurologic outcomes. Um, because of the risk of bias and confounding, they did use a propensity score matching analysis after the initial analysis. A total of 365 patients were included and and one thing that surprised me about this was more lidocaine was used in amiodarone. You know, there was, I think, almost 70% of folks in, in the study that you just talked about got amio. In this study, 217 got lidocaine and 148 got amio. So more people in this retrospective analysis were actually given lidocaine. Where I think this, this gets interesting, and, and I'm hoping proves my point in that it's difficult to make generalizations from these retrospective studies, is that in the initial unadjusted analysis, lidocaine was better across the board. So, Nick, lidocaine, better ROS, 79 versus 68%. More survival to 24 hours. Better survival to hospital discharge. No difference seen with, with favorable neurologic outcomes. But when you match those patients, they took 180 patients and matched them super well. So, really minimal differences, all the covariates, covariates controlled at baseline. There was no differences among any of the outcomes. So to me, that really draws out the limitations of confounders and database studies um, and that no differences were seen when we used like patients. So one thing I'm thinking of is we have those three randomized trials that haven't shown a difference in survival to hospital discharge. And now we have a retrospective study that all of a sudden is, is showing us in the Wagner study an improvement in survival to discharge. So are we to trust that over the randomized gold standard trials that we have or not? I'll throw it back to you as you ponder that question. Wait, are you saying 
that we have had positive data in retrospective studies that did not pan out in our prospective randomized studies? Do we still use vitamin C? <laughs> uh, I'm going to find you a dollar, by the way, for talking about vitamin C on the pod. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll charge you later. <laughs> um, so the... That's a really that's a really uh, very good point that he makes that I'm not going to lie, listeners, I was a little unprepared for. um, But what I kind of want to try to focus on or point out is in this in that chess study, what I it's for they included data from I think it's 2001 or 2000 up till 2014. So during that time, amiodarone is guideline recommended first therapy. Right. And the, the lidocaine, they can make no um, statement on its use. Right. They didn't have data to support it. And just over 30 percent of patients still got it. So what does that tell you? Now, it's hard. Right. We don't know why they were hospitalized. We don't know the cause of the arrest. We don't know what agents they were getting at home while it happened. All those different things. All I'm saying is, is that lidocaine is such a wagon that it wasn't guideline recommended and we were still using it in almost a third of these in-hospital arrests. And I'm going to ignore all of those limitations from retrospective cohort studies that uh, Matt so elegantly laid out in his argument. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, definitely give credit once again. The, the best you So far, you know, you've definitely presented the best two studies. The Rock Alps was the, the most robust study we have in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And the data is not great, obviously, in in-hospital cardiac arrest. But I think the best piece of data that we have is the Wagner trial that you presented. So, you know, I don't know if we're going to see, just based on the logistics of cardiac arrest and, and how it occurs, if we're ever going to see an in-hospital cardiac arrest randomized trial going forward. So this, for a while, this may be the best piece of data that we have. But I think one of the, the biggest things, there's just so many confounders that could be impacting what's going on. And, and where, where I take pause is to see lidocaine in this study improve survival, but then that hasn't been able to be replicated in any of the other randomized studies that we've seen before. So the, the fact, and the authors point this out, the fact that they don't have data on admissions. So, you know, did someone come in with um, acute coronary syndromes with their cardiac arrest versus you know, something else that, that's less severe. What caused the arrest? How long they got CPR? How much drug was given? You know, were we comparing apples to apples with appropriate doses of the medications? Uh, were they given any other antiarrhythmic drugs? Stuff like that. So I guess the question that I would ask is, let's say we put you on the guidelines writing committee and you're, you're working on the next set of ACLS guidelines, uh, I think coming out in 2025. What are your thoughts on it? And I don't know if it's, possible to even answer at this point. Do you think this study will push the needle on a guideline recommendation? So lidocaine and amio both being 2B. Do you have any ideas on if you think this study will push the needle putting lidocaine potentially or making a, a rec putting lido over amio or changing 2B to 2A? I don't I don't think we have any data that we think this is going to go to a class one rec. Any thoughts on that? That's a really great question. And I think if you would have asked this five years ago, I think the answer would have been probably an overwhelming yes that I think it would have. But I think as we have a shift towards our grade guidelines and really looking at our methodology, I actually don't know. 
I, I don't think I'm con- as convinced that it will because it'll probably have a, maybe a similar rec. Maybe one's 2A, one's 2B. But then I'm, I'm imagining in the comments it'll say, it did show this, but randomized trials showed this, right? And I, I'm assuming that's what happened. I feel like the only way it would get a bump is if they truly um, specified for in-hospital like arrest and truly differentiating that. But I still don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah, it's a, a good question to ponder. I, I don't think it's, you know, as we're, we're wrapping up cardiac arrest and moving to refractory ventricular arrhythmias, you know, I, my thoughts are, I think right where the guidelines recommendation sits, I think that's probably appropriate. You know, it can be considered um, adjunct to shocking, to good CPR, defibrillation, stuff like that. But I, I don't think we have definitive data that would put one drug over the other or data that would move the drugs up as far as recommendation goes. These are clearly recommended as adjuncts to other things that we know are better at saving lives. So here's where amiodarone becomes a pretty big heavyweight favorite in the refractory ventricular arrhythmias with a pulse. So Matt, take lead off uh, on this section here for us. I definitely agree with you. I think you, you said it for me, so maybe we could just stop right there. No, no, I'm just kidding. So, so yeah, where Lido and Amio are kind of on the same level in cardiac arrest, I think Amio definitely um, is favored when it comes to management of ventricular arrhythmias, whether that's acute management of ventricular arrhythmias with the pulse or secondary prevention as well. I think it's important to point out that beta blockers are the only meds shown to improve survival for ventricular arrhythmias to date. But antiarrhythmic drugs can be useful, controlling symptoms, controlling arrhythmias, you know, decreasing shocks. And that has a, a big um, proponent for quality of life for patients because it can be traumatic to receive shocks from ICDs. So I think you can really break this topic into its complete own debate, several subtopics, whether it's acute treatment, recurrent um, ventricular arrhythmias during like an ischemic event, like acute coronary syndromes, electrical storm, or secondary prevention. Um, following in, in patients with ischemic heart disease. But I, I definitely agree with you, Nick. I think it's, it's tough to find data and guideline recs with lidocaine here. Um, maybe some of the best data using them with um, during acute ischemia with VT. But when you're looking at treatment of monomorphic VT or stable VT, quote-unquote stable, with a pulse, the guidelines don't even recommend amiodarone at all. They talk about procainamide, or excuse me, the guidelines, Freudian slip, they do recommend amiodarone. They talk about procainamide or amio, potentially sodalol, um, but lidocaine is nowhere to be found. And, you know, I have to be fair that procainamide does have a slightly higher recommendation than amiodarone, a 2A versus a 2B for stable monomorphic VT, largely probably due to the, the small procaine study, which showed that procainamide was a little bit better than amio. But when I'm thinking about what study I wanted to talk about, I, I tried to find a study that directly compared both drugs and and I think the best one that, that strikes home the point uh, for monomorphic VT is actually studied in the case of incessant VT, which is defined as ventricular tachycardia stable VT that lasts for more than an hour at a time. So the study I wanted to talk about was by Somberg and colleagues, published in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2002. It was titled IV lidocaine versus IV amio in a new aqueous formulation for incessant VT. It was a randomized double-blind uh, parallel design looking at amio versus lidocaine for shock 
resistant incessant VT. And it's important to point out this was um, studied in the really early 2000s. That this was one of the first studies that looked at this new form of amiodarone um, without the vasoactive polysorbate 80. So they included people with VT that were refractory to at least one shock. It included people from the U.S., Canada, Hungary, and they gave them an IV bolus of both drugs and then were able to continue both drugs for up to 24 hours to stop recurrent VT from occurring. Um, the doses used were amio 150 milligrams or lidocaine 100 milligrams, and they could get a second bolus. And then if the VT terminated, then they continued a 24-hour infusion with amio or lidocaine. Um, it was a small study, although randomized 29 patients. 18 got amio, 11 got lidocaine, and they point out no, no major differences in baseline characteristics such as age, gender, um, cardiac conditions, ejection fraction. The primary endpoint they looked at was survival at 24 hours. They also looked at termination of VT, one-hour survival, crossover, so how many people on one drug required the other drug for suppression of the VT, and other safety events. For the primary endpoint, 24-hour survival was increased in people on amiodarone. So amiodarone had a statistically significant improvement, 39% survival in the amio group versus only 9% in the lidocaine group. The study also showed improvement in VT termination rates, one-hour survival, and many more people in the lidocaine group crossed over to end up receiving amio. Of note, side effect-wise, you know, we talked about this being one of the first studies using the non-polysorbate 80 version. There was no difference in hypotension between both groups as well, with a, a slightly higher amount actually of hypotension in the lidocaine group, but not statistically significant between both of them. So although it's an older study, it's a randomized study, which showed the amiodarone more effective than lidocaine. And I don't know, Nick, I, maybe after the study, lidocaine just gave up on, on studying this because I don't see many more studies with them after that for recurrent monomorphic VT. The amio aqueous investigators is a top five name of your group for a study like this. I was very excited about this. Until I looked at the rate of immediate VT termination and the drug failure rate between those groups and realized that in monomorphic VT, um, amiodarone wears the crown. I can't argue. I, I, when you try to look through the studies, it's pretty sad. So I'm going to approach this section a tad bit differently, right? We're going to, the, the listeners can let me know if I'm cheating here or not. Um, I'm going to look at patients that have had a cardiac arrest. We've achieved ROSC, and now we want to prevent those ventricular arrhythmias from returning. All right, so before I talk about my paper, I want to highlight a quote, and it's a statement from the 2014 Cardiac Arrhythmias in ACS position paper, and it says, considering the overall efficacy and side effects, lidocaine should be considered as an antiarrhythmic drug for the acute intravenous management of recurrent VTVF in ACS. Now, Matt is likely going to point out that if it's due to ischemia, it is very rarely monomorphic and is almost exclusively polymorphic. But we're just going to pretend that that's not the case. And my, my recommendation is based on a 2013 paper published in Resuscitation. Um, and this was done out of Washington and the King County, Seattle, which by the way, as you go through this shout out to King County and Washington, because they 
publish like if you ha- if you did a heat map of the studies about this boy it is on fire in that specific area both both in the US and Canada so that's did you notice that but when you were going through this stuff yeah definitely shot Kudenchuk and, and and his team the same author from Rock Alps and you know you kind of call him the godfather of, of cardiac arrest and arrhythmia research huh <laughs> that's a Man, what a nickname! I feel like if you if you have that, you you have to perfect your Godfather accent for sure. Um, and he mentioned Dr. Kudinchuk, who is the lead author on this retrospective paper as well, and it's titled "Prophylactic Lidocaine for Post Resuscitation Care of Patients with Out of Hospital VFib Cardiac Arrest." And so, um, this was a propensity matched retrospective study. I uh, looked at 1,700 patients. This was retrospective, right? So they they looked at those who achieved ROSC after that shockable out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And then basically patients who received prophylactic lidocaine versus those who did not. And those who did receive the prophylactic lidocaine reduced the odds of rearrest, increased the odds of hospital admission, and improved survival to discharge. Now, that's the unadjusted analysis. Now, when you when they propensity matched it, the one that maintained significance was reduction of recurrent VFib VTAC arrest. It's the only outcome maintaining significance. Now, why would this possibly be beneficial? You, the listener, might be asking. When I think of lidocaine, I think of ischemia. And ischemia obviously can be a primary cause of cardiac arrest. Not everybody has the capability, center, what have you, to get whisked away to the cath lab for PCI right afterwards. Or maybe they need cardiac surgery. They have to have a little wash-up period, what have you. Maybe lidocaine could help prevent rearresting in that period. So, you know, other retrospective studies looking at this didn't have as positive of a result. Lidocaine didn't induce harm in this high-risk population. So did I cheat, Matt? What do you, what's the verdict? No, we'll allow it. It's a good study. Um, I thought you did a nice job summarizing it. You know, when you look at the propensity match, though, when we match folks up, Overall survival, hospital discharge, no difference, right? So the same limitation and the same lack of outcome that we, we kind of see across the board with these drugs. Um, giving lidocaine long-term or, you know, whether it ends up being a day, in this study, I think it was up to like 24 hours, whether it ends up being a couple days of IV lidocaine, you, know, you start to worry about side effects as well. So I think that's a, a important thing to talk about. And, and believe me, I know amiodarone has tons of side effects, right? But for the most part, most of those side effects are more long-term things we, we worry about. The higher the dose you give them, you know, people being on high-dose amiodarone for long periods of time, we're worried about multiple different organ systems being impacted. But lidocaine, you know, giving people IV lidocaine scares me in a way. And I've, you know, heard of different events that folks have had or people that have experienced toxicities, whether it's cardiac toxicities, neurotoxicities, and you know, uh, monitoring lidocaine toxicity in people that are on continuous infusions is, for the most part, clinical monitoring. You're looking for these signs and symptoms. You know, not every institution has lidocaine levels that can be monitored. For instance, I work at, at two different hospitals, and one of the hospitals, well, both of them five years ago didn't have lidocaine levels. Now one of them, after an event that occurred with toxic levels, um, does have lidocaine levels. The, the main hospital I work at we don't have in-house lidocaine levels. So if I order a level, it comes back 24 to 48 hours later. So it makes it really tough when it comes to need to adjust the dose and, and feeling comfort with it. You know, you're really monitoring based on clinical symptoms because 
you know, we don't routinely have these lidocaine levels that are available. So in anyone that's going to receive lidocaine outside of that initial dose for cardiac arrest, you know, that's something you want to consider monitoring for side effects and because it does have a, a really narrow therapeutic index. Just one other thing I wanted to, to bring out too, and I think maybe, you know, when, I, when you sent me the study and I, I looked into it a little bit more, no difference when they were propensity matched. And, and maybe a big reason that lidocaine showed benefit in the unmatched analysis was one of the, the um, baseline characteristics that stood out to me was that there was a much quicker time in the lidocaine group to ROSC in folks that received lidocaine that didn't. So ROSC was achieved about seven minutes quicker. So 25 minutes in the people that didn't, 18 minutes in the folks that did. And of course, a, a bunch of other confounders that, that may have impacted the outcome that we didn't end up seeing any difference with the propensity analysis. So a good study to present a lot of, a lot of the same confounders that we talked about with the previous studies. And when you match them up, really no difference outside of just recurrent VT. And you, you can't really interpret these without matching, right? In a retrospective, there's so many things that could contribute to all of this that, um, you know, you bring up a really good point in that, you know, you can take those with a grain of salt kind of hypothesis generating, but if, but if, if you have matched data or prospective data that says otherwise, you'd probably put more stock into that versus um, the kind of other retrospective studies. And maybe that was all we had at the time. Um, that's a point. And, you know, you mentioned, look at this, I'm, I'm helping out my opponent here. You know, you mentioned the lidocaine levels and things and you monitor them clinically. Well, what's the big thing? If, they, if we're looking at our post-ROSC patients or things, what's the big thing? A lot of them are not talking to you, right? A lot of times we are, you know, you know, I'm not going to get into TTM or, or not, but a lot of them are either you're, you're either keeping them normothermic, you might be still cooling, but you're still like, they might not be neurologically responding. And so if you're not getting levels, you might not see those adverse effects until it's really severe, right? You're seeing those clinical seizures and you didn't get the chance to um, look at and get those earlier signs to stop. Um, so that is, I think that is a point and that's something universal with lidocaine we've talked when we've talked about it for pain all the way to here is that you know, if you're going to use it right you need to be very thoughtful and it's not as much of a amio can be a set and forget right one mg per minute for six hours sometimes it's continued forever then you go down to 0.5 mg per minute it is like it is kind of set and forget most of those side effects are longer term stuff with amiodarone and most of the side effects with lidocaine is more shorter term so that is playing both sides, that is a, a, an important point to make. And I think that's why when I think of it, right, you're not necessarily going to try to use this in the most stable patient because the risk benefit might not weigh out. But in the patient who literally is dead in front of you, the risk might out or the benefit probably does outweigh the risk. And so those are probably some of the differences in kind of my mindset and thinking with, with the two agents. Yeah, and, you know, thinking about Amio, there, there's no... I'm not aware of any similar studies that have looked at long-term, like the same study that you just presented with lidocaine being available for amiodarone. So it's, it's good that this was studied with lidocaine. Um, difficult to interpret conclusions with, you know, no difference in the potentially matched analysis. But overall, we don't have any data looking at similar with amio to what you just looked at, which is giving amiodarone prophylactically after cardiac arrest for a period of time, whether that be six hours, 24 hours, or longer than that. 
And anecdotally, that happens pretty routinely, especially if it was shockable and we and they responded like we and they got some sort of response with that amiobolus. I would say more often than not, we are starting the infusion. So that is a good point is it wasn't a comparative study. It was lidocaine versus versus not. So that is a, a good point. Okay, so now favorite section, we're going into the potpourri. So this, you know what? I'm not going to mention all the non-cardiac indications that you can use lidocaine for. I won't talk about its use as a local anesthetic or an adjunct pain agent or laryngospasm treatment. I won't. But what I will start off with is, this is a rhetorical question, which agent can we use for pregnant patients with ventricular arrhythmias? That's right, lidocaine. We got amio class D, lidocaine class C. We got to protect those mamas. But... We're going to ignore all that. I didn't, I didn't say any of that. I want to talk about the treatment of arrhythmias in ACS. And I want to specifically bring up a 2011 critical care medicine study that specifically looked at this. And now this was a retrospective analysis of two big previous large trials looking at tr- of management of STEMIs. And it's the Gusto 2B and 3. So these are in the 90s. They were looking at the use of thrombolytics and things like that. And basically what the, what the research group from, from Duke and other places did was um, they wanted to assess survival based on the antirhythmic treatment of ventricular arrhythmias in patients with MI. So they basically looked at, hey, did you get amiodarone, lidocaine, or nothing? And what they found when they, when they went through was in those first three hours afterwards, amiodarone was associated with a, a lower risk of death. Lidocaine was too, but the authors point out maybe some survivor bias in there. And then when they look longer term, right at 30 days and six months, amiodarone was associated with increased mortality at 30 days and six months, an effect that was not seen with lidocaine. So Matt, I ask you, doesn't the phrase go first do no harm? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I, I think largely based on data from that, that you talked about is that we don't routinely use antiarrhythmic drugs anymore for people with ACS events. Yep. So there's, you know, a role in folks that come in with ACS and are having recurrent arrhythmias, maybe before we can get to them to the cath lab or even after they've been intervened on. Um, that's where the potential benefit from using antiarrhythmic comes comes from, and lidocaine does does play a role there. Um, I'll segue into to my potpourri, and what I wanted to talk about was essentially secondary prevention, and talk quickly about a study for secondary prevention and um, how amiodarone can be useful in minimizing ICD shocks for patients. So I was going to talk about the Optic study, which is by Stuart Connolly, who's a big name in the the cardiovascular realm. Um, which was published in JAMA in 2006, and it looked at beta blockers alone, amio plus beta blockers, or sotalol for the prevention of ICD shocks. So these are essentially, it was about 400 people, a bunch of different multi-country studies, so the Canada, Canada, U.S., some countries in Europe, um, people that had an ICD put in for v, VT or VFib arrest um, within 21 days, and they basically sent them home with the ICD and then also sent them home with pharmacologic therapy and looked at stopping recurrence of IC, um, ICD shocks and recurrence of v, VFib, VTAC arrest. And they saw a 38% shock rate in folks just after their uh, VT or VFib arrest 
in folks that got beta blockers alone, 24% shock rate, ICD fire rate in people that got sodalol, and only a 10% fire rate in folks that got beta blockers plus amiodarone. Um, so this, this study was a big piece of data that forced the guidelines to now make the recommendation that the combination of beta blockers plus amio can be useful to prevent recurrent VT, VFib events, um, and ICD shocks, which can be, I, you know, I've seen folks that, that have recurrent VT storm, their ICDs go off nonstop, and, you know, they're, they're traumatized from it. So the amount, it's very painful, it's traumatic, causes anxiety. So if we can use these drugs to also prevent ICD shocks, you know, that can go a long way to not only improving um, quality of life, but also outcomes for them. I am glad that you highlighted those ICD shocks because I think until you have interacted with a patient who's had it or even seen it fire right in front of you, it doesn't, the, the phrase, like it, you, you hear shock and you're like, oh yeah, but like it's, I don't think it, it clicks like it normally does and it is really painful and yes, it might not be mortality, but that's a huge morbidity. Imagine walking around being terrified, you're just going to get an electric shock in your chest. That would be and knowing that you, it's not like you could take it out, right? It's just there all the time. So, um, yeah, but much I, the the fact that we're able to reduce those things, there are a, a lot, a lot of patients who are very, very helpful, thankful for that quality of life improvement. All right, I think it's time for closing arguments. So I'm gonna go. I'll go first here, and then we're gonna we'll we'll end with you. Okay. All right. All right. Sounds good. What do you got? So. After dissecting this evidence, I think we can agree I wouldn't categorize all of it as high quality. You're not seeing level one, grade A recommendations here. Now, Matt said it for me. The highest quality studies are the Rock Alps trial prospective and the, the chest retrospective study. Regardless of the limitations, the most robust that we have. But... I want to end with the 2018 systematic review in resuscitation. Now, it's titled The Effectiveness of Antiarrhythmic Drugs for Shockable Cardiac Arrest. And what this study was looking at was, before I get into that, I want to point out this was published years before this chest study. So all the data included here doesn't even include the, the beautiful positive data that we've talked about. So they did a review of all of the randomized controlled trials and observational studies looking at antirhythmic drugs in, now they did adults and pediatrics. Now they only, there was only one observational pediatric study, the rest were adults. Now, yes, it was all pooled together. But the only high-quality evidence that showed a statistically significant difference was lidocaine. Lidocaine increased the ROSC achievement compared to placebo. So look, we can pool the data. We can look at it individually. I think it's clear lidocaine is the champion of the antiarrhythmic battle. That was applause you just heard in the background in case, in case you were wondering. But all right, um, Matt, you are you, the floor is yours, my friend. Sorry, Nick. I, I don't think I heard any applause. Um, I, w- I was going to, you know, go more of the modest route and talk about, I think, amio and lidocaine being being buddies and being equivalent, you know, for, for cardiac arrest. I think we can put to bed the, the ventricular arrhythmias part where I think amio definitely plays for recurrent ventricular arrhythmias. Um, VT with the pulse, amio definitely stronger data. But 
I agree. You presented the two two strongest studies overall. We debated, and this this I don't think this was an easy debate because the data here is not great. So it's nice that you presented a, a systematic review of meta analyses, but when you take a systematic review and you conduct it with a bunch of not optimal data, what you get is a not optimal systematic review, right? So I feel pretty confident in saying that I think where we are with the guideline recommendations and, and keeping lidocaine and amiodarone at the same level for now, I think that makes the most sense. I think there's utility in using one drug versus the other um, in certain scenarios. I, I don't think we have any super strong evidence. I mean, the, the main study I presented out of hospital cardiac arrest is over 20 years now, and things have changed. Practice with cardiac arrest, how we handle patients, you know, we talked about time to EMS and time to shock and all that kind of stuff. Um, the number of people that know bystander CPR versus don't know, you know, a lot of different variables that impact it. But I think both of them sit right where they should be sitting right now. Useful as an adjunct, in addition to defibrillation, in addition to good CPR, early CPR, you know, bystanders knowing knowing CPR and doing it well. And then we we just need more studies after that, right? I don't think we have any data right now to put one over the other, I would say, although I, I definitely think I won the debate overall. But I think when we're looking at the drugs, I think they, my, my ending is I think, you know, none of them have been shown to improve long-term outcomes or survival. We need randomized data if we're going to make conclusions based on that. I think they both sit right where they are as a, you know, you can consider it. And I think for the most part, we do consider it. We use it for shock refractory VFib, um, VTAC. Amio, I graduated in 2010, so I'm most familiar with Amio. You know, I, I would say most of our students and most of our pharmacists more familiar with Amio, but definitely seeing more lidocaine used, more familiarity with it, and I think it's a, a good option for patients. And and one thing, you know, it'd be great to see. This comes up all the time. Is there's there's absolutely no data on using them together. So you have your guy that's been coding for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You've given your your amio doses already because that's the better drug, right? No, I'm just kidding. You've given your 300 and your 150 of amio, and the team looks at you and what about giving lidocaine? And your options are this guy's dead anyways, been without a pulse for 25 minutes. Do we try that shot in the dark and give lidocaine as well? And and I'll tell you to be honest, we do that a lot, but we have no data on you know any outcomes with that. So that that'd be great to see. What about using them together? That's a good point. And that's how I know I'm talking to a pros pro here because you ended modestly and making me making me look bad in the closing piece of it. Um, but yeah, that is a really good point. And I would say that is that's a practice that that we do as well, because you're exactly right. And this is something you have to you when when, you know, I think learners sometimes might ask like, oh, wait, you know, we're told not to do those things. And it's like, you know, you, you almost have to be blunt of like, you know, all we can do is help them right now, right? Like all that's that's the only thing that could happen yeah. from this. And so um, the idea of that, I completely agree. And that's the thing with all with a lot of these retrospective studies, right? We don't know a lot of the things they were on before, all those kinds of things. I mean, I think this, the argument is personalized medicine, like the one size fits all is just going by the wayside and, and that's head to toe disease states. And I think this is not... Um, this is the exact same, right? That that one of these agents for all, for everybody is not the right answer. And I will not tell the listeners which one I think would win 
because friends of the pod, you know what to do. We're going to have some social media votes because obviously I hear Matt saying that he, he thinks he's the winner. I certainly think I'm the winner, right? So vote on social media at pharmacy to dose. We'll let you all speak and definitely let us know what you thought. Remember Matt's on Twitter at Matty Wanat. Um, Matt, thanks again. This was unbelievable. You are a, uh, a very suitable opponent I thought, but I thought this was an absolute blast. And I feel like I, I learned tons about how little we know about these agents. Yeah. Th- thanks for having me. This is uh, you, you know, you make it fun for the, for the audience and you make it easy on the, the people that come on the show. So appreciate being back and hopefully everyone enjoyed the episode and um, keep doing all the, the great stuff you're doing with the podcast, man. It's great to follow. Another huge thanks to Matt. Uh, what an awesome episode. This was so much fun. Uh, reach out to me again. Please tell me what you think at pharmacy to dose or via email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The reference list with the articles that we kind of talked about focused on, it'll be featured as always in that podcast episode description, as well as the website pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters. and This is pharmacy to dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.